This is episode 243 of the AWS podcast, released on May 13th, 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. I'm Alicia here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined in the studio by a special guest. I'm joined by John Hildebrand, who's a principal solution architect in Canberra. Welcome, John. Thank you, Simon. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for coming along and uh, helping us demystify a topic. And this is a topic that whilst is, I guess, specific to our Australian listeners, is actually relevant to anyone who wants to run a secure environment. And this is something called the ASD Essential 8. So maybe before we start, do you want to tell us what that is? And then we'll talk about some details. Yeah, so the Essential 8, like you mentioned, it's really applicable to all all customers wanting to securely deploy systems. Uh, But it was... um, a set of uh, particularly important uh, risk mitigation uh, principles that the Australian Signals Director has directed their government agencies to, to leverage. And it's interesting, the Australian Signals Directorate, for those of you who don't know, is, is uh, one of our sort of agencies that are responsible with the following mission, which is reveal their secrets, protect our own, which is kind of cool. Um, and so they've sort of tried to give uh, government agencies some security advice about the fundamental things they need to do. And these things include stuff that you know, might be uh, somewhat obvious but still needs to be done properly, things like patching on a regular basis, um, turning off things like macros that shouldn't be running, uh, application hardening, uh, restricting privileges, uh, multi-factor authentication, just to name a few. Um, but you've written a blog post that really takes us through what AWS customers can do to apply these best practices in their environment using the tools available to them. Um So maybe let's walk through some of that. Uh, Let's start maybe with patching. Patching is a problem, (laughs) I think, for a lot of people and the bane of most people's existence. What are some ways that uh, customers can can tackle the patching challenge? Yeah, so with with all these, the Essential 8 um, recommendations, I've actually tried to categorize in sort of three areas where you can um, apply apply these. Uh, So the first one is, just uh, continuing on using the same tools and techniques that you're used to using in um, off, off cloud or on, or on cloud. Um, then the next sort of category was saying, well, can you leverage some of our services to either augment or improve your, um, your uh, position? And then the third category was really saying, when you move to the cloud, it's an opportunity to sometimes think about things a bit differently. So how, how can you do do things differently in the cloud? So, so with patching in, in particular there, so uh, as you could imagine, with patching, you can continue to use your existing tool sets that you maybe your staff are trained and know how to use. Um, but we also have a collection of uh, services now. So there's a service called um, AWS uh, Systems Manager, which has a patch manager uh, capability within it. So you can leverage that now to patch not only your um, EC2 fleet, but also your um, on, on-premises on uh, fleet as well with that service. Uh, and then finally, the sort of third category there is uh, if you start using some of our more managed services, so for example, if you're using, say, uh, uh, Lambda to deploy code uh, as a service, then um, we're handling all the underlying details of, of patching and maintaining that infrastructure. And I think that's the interesting thing is is that reduction of the, I guess, attack vector or risk areas in saying, well, the best patching is to do no patching, not because you're lazy and don't want to do patching, but because you don't have to patch because the underlying service is patched for you. But it's interesting that the um, the patching with the, the systems manager is really effective because the, certainly the patching of the EC2 instances doesn't cost you anything more. It's just kind of 
good hygiene that you should do. So building that out, that out as a minimum is kind of table stakes, isn't it? Absolutely. And what's another of the essential eight that you think uh, are a really easy thing for our listeners to tackle? Uh, so another great example there showing those sort of three categories is around uh, backup. So backups, again, they've, everyone knows that they should be backing up, um, but uh, ASD have felt that it's important enough to highlight to their, to their customers to m- make sure they do that. Uh, so again, um, the same principle applies. So you can continue to use your existing backup tool sets that you, that you know and are trained on using. Uh, in fact, I've got customers where they've leveraged, say, things like Amazon S3 as a, their backup target with their existing um, backup tool sets. So these are things like Commvault and NetBackup and yeah, Legato yeah. and those types of things. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and then we have a number of uh, features within our uh, products that can help you with setting up backup um, regimes. So, for example, with the EBS volumes, um, snapshots as part of the API. Uh, so you can leverage that and you can schedule those. Uh, we even have some solutions to help you, you know, schedule and maintain those, those sort of things. So you can use that to set up your backup regime. Uh, and then some of our services include backup as part of the service offering. So things like um, RDS has automatic snapshots there available to you. DynamoDB uh, now does too. <laughs> it does, uh, yeah. That's uh, a, new, a new one there. Uh, and then finally, again, um, with the cloud, uh, you can start to think about backups potentially a bit differently. So particularly as things like in a good example with uh, immutable infrastructure patterns uh, where you start to think about scripting your old infrastructure deployment. So it's very well described in a script uh, within uh, and the servers are defined within an Amazon machine image. Uh, if you've got those two artifacts stored securely, then that might you may not need to actually back up the images of every server or every week sort of thing. You, you more focus on backing up your data and then having a well-defined um, infrastructure image. And that's interesting, that one, because as well as, as reducing your backup overhead, so you're reducing storage costs, time, potentially software licensing, etc., your recovery time is actually faster because if you're building off, let's say, an AMI and an autoscaling group um, driven by some cloud formation, you're not trying to sort of stream data off a, a virtual tape library or anything like that. You're simply just spinning up the instances. So the, the same quote-unquote number of minutes it would take to spin up is what, what they are versus maybe a, a classic uh, you know, data center-centric restoration where first get servers up and running, then install in, uh, uh, backup clients and then restore. I mean, that, that can take an age, can't it? Exactly, and, and in fact, you can even take that further with um, things like if you've written your cloud formation to be region aware, you can say, I know I can run up that same infrastructure in multiple regions even if I need to. Yeah, it's very, it's very powerful. And it's a good example of, like you said, that three-stage difference of, of doing backups. It's amazing how often customers, even though I have who are doing kind of more, let's call it lift and shift, where they're moving an existing set of infrastructure into AWS, uh, that they can look at, creating that, that golden image, that AMI, a little bit of cloud formation, and suddenly they're not backing up 10, 20, 30, 100 servers that they had to before. Makes your backup window look a lot better. Um, moving on from backups, though, is, is probably something maybe a, t- a tad more sophisticated but really important in a security-conscious world, and that's the concept of multi-factor authentication. Um, what are some of the uh, advisories you had around that? Yeah, so, uh, again, those the sort of... Um you can continue to use your existing multi-factor tools on, at the OS level. So if you've got, uh, say, an AD deployment, Radius servers with multi-factor authentication um, to secure your OS authentication, again, you, you continue to use those. 
Um, but when you're using some of our services, so for example, the console, uh, access to our console and our um, APIs can be secured with multi-factor authentication. And, and in fact, that's one of our key best practices. It's almost one of the first things I tell my customers is, you know, um, do not lock, pass go. <laughs> yeah, do not start until you've locked down the root account with yeah. MFA yeah. Uh, and preferably with a hardware token and lock that in a safe somewhere yeah. uh, and then move on to IM accounts. Um, similarly with things like Amazon Workspaces, we support multi-factor authentication to that um, as part of the service. So again, you can leverage um, whatever you know MFA sort of posture you've got in that space. Exactly. And then there's uh, interesting uses of MFA like uh, activating MFA delete on your S3 bucket and then not having an MFA so you can't delete, which is kind of yeah. the, the, the reverse of having the MFA is not having the MFA but requiring it. Mm. So. Or having it locked away as a break glass. Yeah, sort of yeah. And I guess speaking of authentication and, uh, and privileges, etc., is another one of the essential aid is to restrict administrative privileges. Uh, which again seems kind of obvious, but how often do we walk into organisations and there's uh, post-it notes with passwords and other things? Um, what are some of the things that AWS customers can do to have that that least privilege model running? Yeah, so again, the sort of the basics, you know, the table stakes is you know lock down your root account with MFA, lock that away. You typically don't use it. Then you create um, identity and access management accounts for for all your users. So initially, they may be a few you know, privileged users, but then the the best practice, just like on all sort of systems, is to give people only the privilege they need to do their job. Mm. Uh, so it's all about you know least privilege and then maintaining that within uh, identity and access management. Uh, to if it's a very large deployment, you may use um, techniques like federating to an on-premise or um, a cloud-based directory. That's the sort of corporate standard. Um, so then it all links back to you know HR. So that way, when someone leaves, they're automatically revoked for for access those those types of situations. Mm. And that that scoping down is really important. That concept of least privilege. And one of the interesting things is obviously that you can set up those IAM roles and IAM users, et cetera, and those policies straight away. But you can also then run reports later on and see when the last time a particular privilege was used. So you may have still overscoped. So there's that best practice of just revisiting, reporting, and then pruning down as well, isn't there? Yeah, and you can even take that. Uh, um, I've seen some articles where people take that to the next level where they automate the revoking of those privileges. So if you, it's like if you don't use it, you lose it type of uh um, policy. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so you may even look at sort of automation and, and on sort of the topic of automation too, things like, um, systems manager again can help you there because, because system manager, you can run arbit uh, scripts to, to do various admin tasks and then you can permission those scripts. So you can say who can run them. Uh, so that allows you to say you might want to reduce what people can do in an ad hoc basis, but you may give them permission to run some particular scripts to do various tasks too. So it's another way to sort of reduce what they can do but still allow them to do their job. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's this balance between being secure and allowing people to do what they have to do. But also I think one of the the biggest attack vectors we've seen from APTs and others is where they get into the system through something innocuous like an email or just a a low-privileged account but then can kind of move laterally and then start escalating their privilege. And this this is really a technique to, to stop that, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. Well, John, thanks for coming onto the podcast and demystifying a little bit. We'll link in the show notes to the blog post itself so that uh, our listeners can get into the details of the options available to them. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Simon. Fantastic. And thanks, uh, everyone, again, for listening. We do love to get your feedback, at amazon.com. And until next time, 
very, very securely, I would hope, keep on building.